Welcome to the C12 Podcast. C12 is a college and young adult ministry where 20-somethings at 12 Stone Church gather on Thursday nights. We hope you are encouraged and guided by today's message. Well, hey, what's up, y'all? Welcome to C12. Welcome home. Man, what a happy, sunshiny Thursday. So grateful for that. No, I'm just joking. It's so bright outside. It's lovely. Uh, Hey, if this is your first time with C12, we like to say welcome home, and we really mean it. Welcome home. We're so glad that you're here. And if this is your first time, as you guys are getting settled, let me give you a little bit of a recap. All fall long, we've been in this conversation about spiritual fruit. We've been talking through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's so many. We've been talking about all nine of them. Say it five times fast. I'll give you a hundred bucks. I didn't hear anybody. Offer's done. Quick. Uh, Hey, we've been talking about how Jesus is so clear. He makes it crystal clear that when we abide in him, when we live relationally rooted in him, that he will grow those fruits within us. Just like a farmer, he'll plant a seed, he'll tend to it, he'll water it. As it grows, he'll prune some of the branches off to make sure the nutrients go to the right place to, to season the fruit. Just like a farmer would do that, that God does that with us. He does that in us. So that's, that's the conversation up until now. You guys tracking with me? You ready? All right, good. We're jumping in. Ready or not. Sorry about that. It's going to happen. So I got a question right off the bat. Uh, I think that most of you are going to fall one way or the other, uh, but if you're right in the middle, just see, like, if you lean one degree the other way, you gotta got to jump that way. Cool? Uh, raise your hand when it comes to relationships, when it comes to maybe conflict in friendships or relationships. Who's more direct in the room? Like, you're a really direct person. You know what I love, and I thought it would happen, and it did? All of the direct people raise their hands so fast. Like, that's me. I'm direct. Maybe you, uh, as a direct person, you like to look conflict head on. Maybe you like conflict, maybe you don't, and you're just really good at it. I don't know, that happens sometimes. Maybe for you, uh, you find the most efficient way to say something instead of maybe the nicest way, right? I've been categorized in that way. All right, other group, other group. Who's more indirect? I was really glad that happened too. The hand's kind of like, that's me, that's me. Okay, so it, it matches up, it matches up. So if you're indirect and you would do anything to avoid conflict, you would, you would sell your left arm to get out of conflict. All of your friends decide to go to this one restaurant for lunch and you hate that restaurant, but you're not gonna say anything because you don't wanna be that guy. You're just gonna be okay with it and you're gonna suffer through Cheesecake Factory for lunch again. Uh, shameless plug, I hate Cheesecake Factory. Uh, personally, if I had to choose one of those kind of schools of thought, one of those groups to toss my hat in with, it would be the direct group. My whole life, oh my gosh, I've always been told, you are very direct. Some of the more negative terms are you're more uh, intense than you should be. You're you're a little sharp. I get it. Uh, Somebody recently actually called me a velvet brick. (laughs) And when I heard that, I was so overwhelmed by the fact that he called me a brick that I was like, I don't know how to feel about this. So I asked him what he meant. He said, hey, that means that sometimes you can be really kind, but not necessarily the nicest. It's like, huh. I still don't like that you call me a brick, but it makes more sense now. It makes more sense. And if you're, if you're from the South, who grew up in the South? Who grew up in Georgia? Okay, then you guys know what I mean when I say that there's a difference between being nice and being kind, right? You guys all know the difference. Maybe if you're from the North and you're down in the South now, then you've learned it pretty quickly. But you can be very kind and very much not nice, and the opposite is true too. Southern hospitality, somewhere in the middle. I like to think that Southern hospitality is when you're very nice, but you lack all kindness. You know, it's, it's like... Um, I don't know about you guys, when I was younger, my, my mom, we would always go to the grocery store with her, and it was when you run into, like, that friend from, from school, and they're with their parents, your family is not really the biggest fan of them, and they're not really the biggest fan of you, so it's like the mom and her kid, and it's my mom, and it's me, and we're walking up, it's like, oh, hi, hi, how you doing? You do, like, the little squinty smile, it's like, the, hi, good to see you, 
oh, and then you walk away and you're talking smack about them and you know that they're talking smack about you. It's like, I'm nice to your face, but I'm not gonna really follow through with my actions. That's, that's being kind, but not, or nice, but not necessarily kind. And the opposite is true too. I think we all know uh, like a gruff, kind of grumpy, harder exterior person who might not say the gentlest things, but they're so kind. They always do the right thing. I know we all have somebody in mind right there. That's me. I like to think so. If any, any Gilmore Girls friends? Okay. I, was, I, I thought that I might get a response there. My wife is wonderful. Shout out to my wife, Ashley. Um, she put on Gilmore Girls this week, and uh, I started watching one episode, and then I watched another, and it kind of kept going, and several hours later, I, I watched a lot of Gilmore Girls. Uh, and there's, uh, there's one character on there. His name's Luke. He owns the diner, and Luke is kind, but he's not nice. Dude says the worst things, and everybody's just okay with it. But then at the end of the day, he gets them their coffee in the right way, and I'm gonna count that as kind, but not nice. So see, like, we all understand the difference between kind, we all know somebody who's very gentle, but when they walk away, it's like, I don't know if I trust you with that information, and the opposite. And so, for all the Southerners in the room especially, I wanna make sure that we're all on the same page, that we all understand what I mean when I say gentleness, when I say kindness, because that's what we're talking about tonight, gentleness and kindness. I thought that the best way to do that was to have a little bit of a Greek lesson. Does anybody speak Greek? Yes. I saw no hands raised. So we're all going to suffer through this together. Uh, I want to say a word, and then I want you to repeat after me. We're going to toss it up in just a second. Everybody ready? Prautes. Oh, that was a train wreck. Try again. Prautes. Three syllables. Prautes. I think we got the hang of it. Prautes. It means gentleness in Greek. Thank you for all those who did it again. Uh, It means gentleness in Greek. And the way that that's kind of uh, spelled out as far as the definition goes is meekness or quiet strength, which expresses power with reserve. I love the way they put that. It's meekness, which expresses power with reserve. Gentleness isn't a lack of strength. Gentleness isn't a lack of power. It's just a controlled release of it. It's like a dam. Like you know that if, if a dam opened up all of the, I don't know how it works, valves, I don't know. If it released all of the water all at once, there'd be a lot of damage on the other side, but it doesn't. It just releases a little bit at a time. It's very powerful, but it's controlled in how it releases it. And when we look through scripture, the cool thing about gentleness is that every single time it's mentioned, prautes, every single time that root is used, nearly every time, it's talking about how to communicate. It's talking about how we interact, how we speak to one another, the, the nature of a sound. And so what I mean is this. I mean, in the Old Testament, when God spoke to Elijah, he spoke through a gentle breeze. It was the nature of the way that God spoke. If someone is caught in sin, Paul tells us, hey, restore that person gently. Later, he tells us, hey, instruct your opponents, people that we disagree with, instruct your opponents gently in the hope that God would bring them into repentance. So we see that gentleness is always tied to what we say and how we say it. That's, that's what I want you to take away. Gentleness is what we say and how we say it. One more time, prautes. That one was sad. It's okay. I have another one for you, and it's harder. So I need everybody to sit up, sit up in your chair, shake it out a little bit. Nobody's, I'm going to make this so awkward. Sit up in your chairs. I'm, I'm literally going to make you sit up in your chairs. Good, thank you. Uh, this is the word, ready? Christotes. That was so good. I heard just somebody hawk a straight loogie. Just, Christotes. You got to really get in there. Don't spit on your neighbor. This is the the closest Greek word for kindness that we have. This is how we're going to define it. Spirit-produced goodness, which meets a need and avoids harshness or cruelty. Spirit-produced 
goodness. The cool thing about this word is that I said it was the closest Greek word to kindness, and that's because in Greek, the words goodness and kindness are actually the exact same thing. They're inseparable. For some reason in English, we've separated them. Uh, They're kind of like these abstract, slightly different things, but in Greek, it was one word, goodness and kindness. And it was always this inward fruit that would lead to an outward action, spirit-produced goodness, which leads to somebody meeting a need, a need. Where we find it? We find it a whole bunch in Ephesians. Paul loves this word, Christotes. I think he liked to say it as he was writing. That's what I like to think. Ephesians 2 tells us that even when we were dead in our sin, God showed us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. God showed kindness by sending Jesus. It was an action. He met our greatest need through Jesus. It was his kindness to us. And then later on, a few chapters later, Paul says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. He says, do this action, forgive one another, show kindness. In other words, kindness is what you do and how you do it. Gentleness is is what you say and how you say it. Kindness is what you do and how you do it. It's kind of fun because the cool thing about gentleness and kindness of all nine of the fruits is that these are super interrelated. They're the only ones that require a recipient. Isn't that strange? They're the only ones that absolutely require a recipient. All of the other fruit, if you were on a desert island, God could grow that in you and you could see the fruit. If somebody was looking at you through binoculars, they they would see those shifts in you. They would see the evidence. But for gentleness and for kindness, you can't just claim to be gentle without evidence. You can't claim without giving it to someone else. The same is true for kindness. That's a scary thought because that means that the people closest to you know a little bit better than you if you're gentle or kind. So I want you to turn to your neighbor. I want you to say, we know, we know. You actually whispered it. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Story time. Story time. Uh, <laughs> there's a couple of things you need to know for this story to, to really take home, uh, take heart. First is that I didn't, uh, I didn't always grow up being the gentlest or kindest person. Uh, God is still working in my heart. I told you that somebody a couple months back called me a velvet brick. We're getting there. Uh, but I didn't. I was much, much worse in high school. And what's crazy uh, is that I had teachers that I would like. Anybody have a teacher that you like? And I would do everything that I could to be on their good side. And the opposite was true. I had teachers that I really didn't like. And so I would do everything I could to just kind of like get under their skin. You guys know what I'm talking about. You, got, you know that kid in class. That was me. I have to admit it. And so there was this one teacher that I just, I couldn't stand her. I couldn't stand her. And so uh, our, <laughs> our interactions became kind of this, this huge battle, and it came to this movie-like climax my senior year, and I'm not joking. You're going to see in a second. So all you need to know beyond that is that uh, I was a part of a competition called the Literary Competition. And if you grew up in Georgia, somebody laughed, if you grew up in Georgia, uh, the literary competition was the coolest thing you could possibly be a part of. Uh, there were competitions for singing and for performing and for giving speeches and for writing essays. It was awesome. I don't, I don't know if you could hear the, the sarcasm just dripping out of my mouth. Um, it was a lot of fun, and I was on a lot of different teams for my school. We had lots of different like event teams, and every school would compete in regional, and if you won, you went on to state. And my school loved to host regional. We just liked to, to have everybody come here. Partially, I think it was out of laziness, but we liked to have everybody. And one of the teams that I was on, every year we would set up in the morning real early before this long day of competition. And then after everybody was done, we would tear everything down. It would take hours. It was the worst part of the day for me. 
So for three years, I was on every team they'd let me be. In my senior year, I finally got smart, and I said, let me focus in on one team in specific, one event. It's going to be all on me. I'm going to give all of my time and practice to this, and I'm going to quit every other team. So that's exactly what I did, including the team that sets up and tears down. It's bittersweet, much more sweet than bitter. And so competition day rolls around. I'm, I'm, I'm having this performance. It's going really well. Uh, everybody that I want to be there is there. I win that day. It goes so great. This is such a sweet day for me. And then the end of the day rolls around, uh, and, and something sours it. I'm walking out of this hallway right to my car. It's, it's directly outside of this door from the school, and I have to walk by the chorus room. And as I walk by, I hear it open, and I hear somebody call my name. I was like, hmm, that's strange. I don't know who is still here. I look back. It's my chorus teacher. The one that, the group I quit, right? Uh, the one that I butt heads with a lot. She goes, hey, Justin, uh, I really need your help tonight tearing everything down. A whole bunch of our team already went home, so I, I'm going to need you to step it up. It's like, mm, I don't want to do that. So I, I had to think through pretty quickly, and my decision was not the greatest. I looked her in the face and said, you know what, I'm just, I'm really tired tonight. I don't think I will. Sorry. I just kept walking. And as I turned, I was a student, she was a teacher. As I turned, she said, excuse me, what did you say? It was that kind of, it was like that mom, excuse me, where I just kind of, just kind of pivoted and looked back at her, unsure of what to do next. She called me over and she started getting on to me. Like, hey, that was so disrespectful. What you just said, what you just did, that really like, that shows so, so little teamwork and so little care. And she started getting on to me. And in the middle of it, I started realizing she's not my teacher anymore. She doesn't lead my group. Why am I standing here for this? And so I had this horrible smile. It was like the Grinch's smile when it just kind of gets big. <laughs> I had this horrible thought come across where it's like, I'm just going to wait for her to say everything she needs to say, and I'm going to do the exact same thing I just did, and I'm going to see how much I can get under her skin. So she finished chastising me, and it was well-deserved, but she finished, and she goes, so I need you to go help move that piano over there. And I said, you know what? I just, I don't think that you're my teacher anymore. I really don't think that you're in charge of me. I'm just going to head home. Have a good night. And I turned, and I walked out. I know, I know. High school Justin. Uh, so I turned, I started walking out uh, of where I was. She called my name again. I didn't turn around this time. She called it louder. She started screaming. And all of a sudden, just as I put my hand on the handle of the door, it's one of the push doors, you know the high school ones. Just as I do that, I hear this crash. One of like the car crash crashes. And it was so loud. And it was behind me. It was in the classroom. So I didn't know what it was. So I flip around real quick. And I just see sheet music. It's just floating down. Where It's in the chorus room. It's just falling from heaven. Like what's going on? And then I follow the trail of the sheet music and I see well, the remnants of a music stand. I made her so mad that she chucked a music stand and she smashed it into a million pieces. There were teachers in the room, there were parents in the room, there were students in the room. <laughs> then when I made eye contact with her, she started calling me names that I couldn't include in the story. And again, I just smirked and I walked away. And that was the end to my hero story. It was like a breakfast club moment for me. Don't clap, don't clap. You don't see the direction I'm going, don't clap. And I felt so good about that story for so long. That was the one that I would bring out at parties. I was like, look at how cool I was. Look at this mom. I was the hero. She was the villain. And as I got a little bit older, I started thinking about the story more and more. And I was like, you know, yeah, what she did was bad, but there's no hero in that story. There's just like two villains. Both of us sucked. Both of us did things that we surely regret now. I know I do. And the weird thing about it, the weird thing about it is that everything she did was wrong. Everything she did, I'll classify that, but everything that I did was wrong. Absolutely everything. I provoked her. I, I, I felt like the ask that she was making of me was super unjust. Like, I just, I'm not part of the team. Why would you ask me? It's not fair. 
So I sought out to punish her by being disrespectful and by being snarky and by saying things I knew would get under her skin. I wanted her to do something. I didn't know she could throw a music stand that fast or that far, but I wanted her to do something. And see, here's, here's the trouble is that what she did was wrong, but so, so is what I did. And a caveat before we move on, every single person is responsible for their own actions. Every single person is responsible for their own reactions. You gotta own it. But Paul is also very clear that when you put a stumbling block in front of someone else, if they trip, is that really fully their fault? Come on, I provoked her. We're both responsible in that situation. But it led me to this thought, and I wanna ask you a question out of that story. Having reflected of my failure right there, here's the question. What do your words and your actions bring out of other people? Think about relationships that maybe, maybe friendships that when you guys went to college, it kind of grew apart. When you think about that friendship, what did you leave them with? What's their impression of you? Do you bring out the best in people? Do you build them up? Do you, do you encourage them to be the best that they can be? Or do you, like I did, do you bring the worst out of people? With your words and with your actions, do you seek to, to provoke? Or maybe not even seek, maybe it's accidental, but everywhere you go, somehow fire follows See, there are, there are very few passages that demonstrate the fact that words and actions matter better than John 8. So if you've got your Bibles with you, if you want a Bible under the front of your seat, if you've got your phone with you, go ahead and turn to John 8. We'll toss it up on the screen too. I want you guys to read it with me. It's beautiful, this passage. There's so much we could talk about in it, but we're going to break it down here in just a second. I'm going to read it all the way through. John, chapter 8, we're reading verses 1 through 11. Here it is. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All of the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law, uh, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and, and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up, said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And if you, if you grew up in church, you might have heard this passage. You might have heard the passage of the adulterous woman. You might be very familiar with it. There's a lot to unpack in it. It's wonderful. We could cancel the rest of the semester's teachings and just sit in this. It's so dense. But I want to ask you to put on a very specific lens. Now imagine with me, if I handed you a pair of purple glasses, they had purple lenses, and you would put them on, what would everything look like? It looked purple. So that's what we're gonna do. I want you to put on this lens and I want you to look back at the story with me and I want you to see something very specific. So here's the lens. How do you treat your enemies? How do you treat your enemies? That's really what we're getting down to tonight. It's important that we go to that place in our minds because I think God is gonna, once we're there, lead us in a new direction. So let's look back at the Pharisees with that lens, with that question, how do you treat your enemies? Let's think on that. How do the Pharisees treat Jesus? How do they treat the woman? The Pharisees didn't want to discover the truth when they were walking up to Jesus. 
They didn't want to come to an understanding with him. They wanted a singular thing. They just wanted to be right. They just wanted to be right. Walking into this, they wanted to prove that they were right. They wanted to protect their image of themselves. They wanted to protect their image for other people. They just wanted to prove, hey, you're wrong, you're wrong, I'm right, and now look at me. Now I can stand a little bit taller than you. They wanted one thing. It didn't matter who was in their way. They put down everybody who threatened it. So look back at the passage. Look first at how they treat the woman. They brought this woman to the temple and they placed her in the midst. They placed her in the midst. That's not how you... It's not how you treat a person. Imagine they're walking in, they're storming in, there's a whole bunch of them and they walk in, they have her in their hands and they place her right there like an object. They've taken away her humanity. They've taken away her identity. They have treated her as less than human. They put themselves on this moral pedestal so that they could justify, hey, what she did was wrong. Actually, it was, it was wrong. And they used that, they weaponized that fact when they had conflict with her to make themselves feel like they were in the seat of righteousness, to make themselves feel like they could judge it, justify their behavior. Then they turn to Jesus. And what do they do? They do the exact same thing. They take away his humanity. They make him something less than human. They identify him as an object. They try to trap him. You don't trap another human. You trap an animal. You you trap something that has less intelligence, less worth, less value than you because you're in charge of it. You're going to control it. So they dehumanized everybody in the situation in order so that they could sit on this throne of superiority. You guys remember the lens that we're wearing? How do you treat your enemies? When you fight with someone, when you disagree with them, when somebody makes you mad, do you care more about being right than anything else? Are you gonna do anything it takes to put the person down in front of you just to make a point? Do you begin to view them as a threat? Are you going to put them down? Have you won an argument somewhere, but have you lost that relationship? How do you fight? How do you treat your enemies? That's how the Pharisees treated their enemies. Now, how did Jesus treat his? I love this. See, when the scribes and the Pharisees and the woman all come into the temple, what's Jesus doing? He's sitting, teaching. I love this image. Imagine him like on the ground, something, I don't know, something like this room, it looks very different. But he's on the ground, there's kids circling around him, their parents are behind him. He's teaching everybody. He's teaching all of the people. And the Pharisees barge in. They bring this woman, there's this huge commotion. They interrupt what Jesus is saying. And what does Jesus do? He stays seated. He doesn't get swept up in the emotion of the conversation. He doesn't get swept up in the emotion of the moment. He doesn't even get provoked to anger. But when he does respond, when he does decide, hey, this is what I'm going to do, what what does he do first? He sits and he draws with his finger. He writes with his finger in the dirt. There's a lot of conversation. There's a lot of theologians who are like, this is what he wrote and this is why he wrote it. And those are great conversations. They have a place. But right here tonight, I think the important part is to note that Jesus took a second before he responded. Jesus took a moment. He thought about his response. He thought about the question. I like to think that he prayed through it but I know that he didn't respond immediately. They had to continue asking him is what the scripture says. And when he stands up, he says something gentle. He doesn't condemn them. Instead, he offers them the ability to condemn somebody else so long as they're without sin. Jesus offers them a view of their humanity that they had neglected to see. And then when he turns to the woman, they all walk away. They've they've come to face the realization that, oh gosh, I'm not perfect. I don't sit on this seat of superiority. Then he turns to the woman, and what is the first thing he says? Woman. 
The first couple of times I read that passage, when I first became a Christian, the first couple of times, I was so confused. I was like, why? Jesus, you know her name. Why are you calling her woman? That's so weird to me. And as I was preparing for this, I'm so grateful. I feel like I figured it out. I feel like God revealed that what he did in this moment was give her back her identity. What he did in this moment was give her back the humanity that the the Pharisees and the scribes, the, the humanity that they had taken away from her. So I want you to catch this. Look, Jesus' kindness humanized the woman. She had been objectified. She had been made to feel lower, less than she was actually worth. And his gentleness humanized the Pharisees. He humbled them. He made everybody come face to face to come to term with the fact that they are human, not perfect, but worthy of love from one another. It's this beautiful image that when Jesus stands up, look, when the Pharisees, when they come up to him, imagine, remember, they're still sitting down, or Jesus is still sitting down, and they come up, and they place this woman, and they look down at him, and they look down at her. What does Jesus do when he responds? He stands up, and he looks them in the eye. Everything he does in this moment equalizes the playing field. And once everybody is coming to terms with the fact that they're not perfect, with the fact that their objective should not be to be right, it should be to love, once everybody has realized that what they've done, what they've done might not be right, what happens? It ends. Everybody walks away. Everybody has been disarmed. Everybody has been released of maybe their anger or their judgment or their condemnation. Jesus calls us to love our enemies with gentleness and with kindness. But forgiveness is next to impossible when you see the person across from you or when you see yourself as anything but human. There's a story I debated about sharing tonight, but I want to share it nonetheless. I really feel like God led me to share this because I didn't want to. So here it is. When I was super young, uh, maybe like five or six my parents got divorced. My dad had, had, he had an affair. And I didn't see him again after that. And it was interesting because I, I, at first I didn't care. It was like five or six. It's like, okay, I didn't really see him that much to begin with, I guess. And as time went on, as I got older, I began to hate him. I began to despise what he did to me. I, I began to ask myself the question like, How could he do this to us? How could he do this to my family? Didn't he know that it would hurt us? Didn't he know that it was wrong? I wanted him to face justice. I wanted him to come to terms with what he did. I wanted to hate him. I wanted to justify it. I wanted him to acknowledge that what he did was wrong, and I wanted him to apologize for it. And when he never did, man, I had so much reason to sit on my high horse. I had so much reason to judge him and to condemn him. But as I was preparing for this message, the Holy Spirit would not free me up from this thought that if this were the story that we were in, if this John 8 story was what was happening in my family, that if my father was in the position of the adulterer, rightly so, what he did was wrong, then that gives me two options for where I'm sitting. I'm either in Jesus' seat or I'm in the Pharisee's seat. And the way that I'm thinking is not the way that Jesus is thinking. I was so consumed with what he had done wrong, 
with what his actions and with what his words had been to anybody but his family that I missed the vile, frustrating, angry, sinful nature that was growing within me. I justified the fact that I didn't want to forgive him. I didn't want to love him. I didn't want to extend any kindness to him, that he earned that from me. I didn't want to. But when I came to grips with the fact that I am sinful, when I came to grips that I have been forgiven, that I have been loved when I didn't deserve it, well, then I had no excuse. That wasn't even a fight that I picked. Bad things happen and you don't provoke them. The music stand was provoked. This one wasn't. I had nothing to do with this. I didn't ask for this. I didn't cause this. Listen, this is something that we don't often talk about in the church, but I think it's important. The gospel of Christ, the good news that Jesus came, it's offensive. It's offensive. And here's why. is because we have a sinful nature within us that resists that truth. The gospel calls me to forgive my father when everything within me doesn't want to. The gospel calls me to love him and to extend kindness and gentleness to him when I don't think that he deserves it. The gospel offends the sinful nature in me. I'm called to forgive. I'm called to love him because I have received the same thing. There are some of you sitting here tonight thinking something very similar. How could I forgive that person? How could I love that person? How could I extend kindness or gentleness to them, if anything? There are some of you in the room who are in the opposite seat. Gosh, how could that person forgive me? How could they show me love? How could they show me gentleness or kindness after what I did? I want you to look at Matthew chapter 5 with me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 48. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Listen, never is there a greater opportunity to share the love of Christ than when you disagree with someone, than when you are frustrated and fighting with someone, than when you've been hurt by someone. It's so easy to love people who love you. It takes something outside of yourself to extend forgiveness and grace and love and gentleness and kindness to the people that you don't think deserves it. It takes something bigger than you. Gentleness and kindness are fruits of the Spirit that can only be found through abiding in Jesus. God isn't asking you to do something that's within your power. There's a reason why it feels difficult. There's a reason why it feels like, no, this conversation's for everybody but me. That person deserves what they get. When we show this spiritual gifts to other people, we show them their value in God's eyes and in our eyes. We humanize them and get this, we humanize us. It puts everybody on an even playing field at the feet of Jesus. 
And if I can take it a layer deeper, the person across from you, the person who's frustrated you, the person that you've hurt, the person that's come to mind right now when I'm talking about this, they're not your enemy. That person is not your enemy. I don't know what they've done. I don't, I don't, really, I don't really care what they've done because the truth won't change based off of the circumstance. People are not your enemy. Look at what Ephesians 6.12 says. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It will feel like sometimes your enemies are the people sitting across from you. It feels like they're waiting to see you at work tomorrow. It feels like when you go back to class, your teacher, a classmate, somebody's hurt you and, man... That's my enemy. Other people, it's something else, but that's my enemy. It'll feel like some of you, when you go to school, I know there are a lot of teachers in the room. Maybe you've got a student that reminds you of me from that story. They're not your enemy. For others, I think that this is timely to have this conversation. I feel like God knows exactly what he's doing because I think he does. When you're sitting across from someone at your Thanksgiving table, they're not your enemy. They're not your enemy. I don't know the nuances of your stories. I don't know everything that that person has done. I don't know what God is asking you to forgive. But I do know that a whole bunch of you are sitting in here right now frustrated or confused. You turned your ears off as soon as I said the word forgiveness a while back. You're hesitant. You're straight up unwilling to hear this conversation, to hear the invitation, the command of God to love your enemies, to forgive those who have hurt you. Because I was. That was the seat that I sat in, so I know that there are people in the room in the same place. So I wanna help you by making this moment extremely practical. I wanna lend you two questions to think through, two questions to pray through. We're gonna toss them up on the board. Is there anyone that I need to apologize to? Is there anyone that I need to forgive? As Christians, we never graduate past forgiveness. It's not that we're forgiven at the beginning and then we're just good and we just kind of become all high and mighty and righteous. Every day, we should seek God's forgiveness and every day, we should forgive those who have trespassed, those who have hurt us. I don't know if it's for one of you or for 30 of you in the room, but God is calling you to forgive. God's calling you to extend gentleness and kindness give that person back value that they might feel like they've lost. So I want you to ask yourself these questions. And I don't want you to let yourself off the hook until you've prayed through them, until you've asked the Holy Spirit, because you might be able to lie to yourself. You might be able to say, no, I'm good. That's not for me. But the Holy Spirit, he's going to convict you, and there's power in that gift. There's power when the Holy Spirit brings someone to mind and gives you a practical step, a practical follow-up. Obedience is an act of worship. When God asks something of you, when you obey, you are showing that you trust God's plan even when you don't understand it or agree with it. Obedience is an act of worship not just singing with our hands up, that's wonderful, but obedience and worship are so much larger than that. So as we step into this moment of worship, you can stay right where you are, you can stay seated. Maybe God messed with you while I was talking. But maybe you've already been in this conversation with God, you've had it a bunch of times and you've still come to the same point. Like, no, not today, not today. That's hard work, I'm gonna do it tomorrow. 
I wanna invite you, if that's you, come down to the front when the prayer team comes up. They're gonna come and stand right along here. I'll be right in the middle. I'd love to help pray for you. We'd love to help pray for you. Because what God is commanding you, this isn't me. I'm sorry if you feel offended. It's not me. The gospel is offensive. It calls us to die to ourselves. It calls us to forgive our enemies. So if you need extra help, if you need strength outside of yourself, which I'll give you a spoiler, you do, come and help us. Come and let us help you and pray for you. So I'm going to pray over us. We're going to step into a moment of worship. Don't miss this moment. Don't miss the freedom on the other side of this moment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. God, unforgiveness unravels us. When we carry bitterness, when we choose to ignore your command to forgive, to love the people that we don't feel like loving or forgiving, when we decide to treat them how we believe they they deserve to be treated, God, we're not just punishing them. God, we are putting chains on ourselves. So Holy Spirit, I pray that as I'm talking, as I'm praying to you, that you would flood this room with conviction. That Father, as people ask, who do I need to apologize to? Who do I need to forgive? That God, you would do them the kindness of bringing a face, bringing a name to mind. Turn things up. Would you mess with us tonight, Father? Bring reconciliation in our families, in our friendships. Would you restore what has been broken? Would you restore what has been lost? Bring freedom, Father, as we bring ourselves to you in obedience. God, would you be glorified. Fill this place as we exalt you. We love you. We praise you in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the C12 podcast today. To stay connected with C12, make sure to follow us on Instagram at C12stuff. One of the best ways to get connected with others and grow in your relationship with God is jumping into a small group. To sign up for small groups, go to 12stone.com slash small groups and search college. We hope to see you next week.